The following message is by a guest speaker at Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Back in um, December, uh, my wife and I, Kim, we, we flew to Dallas because we had a holiday dinner and to celebrate at work. And, um, and we came back the, the following morning, flew back, and we were uh, going to head back to you know, our home on Huntley. And then um, we decided to stop by for a quick lunch at Chodang Sundubu. Has anyone been there? It's like a tofu place, Korean restaurant. It's very good. Can't find anything like that where we live. And so we, we stopped for lunch, and we walked in, and I ran into an old friend of mine I hadn't seen in, like, over 10 years. It was an old college friend. And, you know, we greeted each other. We hugged, and he was eating lunch with a coworker, And, and then we just sat down, you know, kind of nearby and ordered our food. And I was pretty hungry, so I ordered an appetizer. And you got to get tofu soup when you're there. That's what they're known for. So Kim and I ordered that. And, and I noticed through the meal that my friend kept on looking over at us like, can you just give me this? And then he'd just go back to eating. And he did that a few, t- a few times, actually. It was kind of distracting. I'm just trying to enjoy lunch. And he just kept looking at me and just shaking his head. <laughs> and about halfway through the meal, Kim and I... Uh, realized, you know what, we should probably get a couple extra, you know, entrees for uh, Kim's parents who were watching our kids overnight. So we ordered a couple extra, and, you know, we, get, we had a package to go, and, and then um, my friend got up and kind of walked by our table, and he was getting ready to leave with his coworker, and he just slowly walked by our table and looked at what we were eating, and then just said, all right, we'll see ya. <laughs> And so, you know, like that was strange. And, and, you know, not long after that, we decided to, or I asked for the check, and, and the waitress came over and she said, oh, your, your friend paid for your meal. And I started laughing because we kind of realized what had happened is I think he had committed to paying for our meal before we started ordering for, like, the whole world. <laughs> and so he had kind of signed up to, you know, buy the two of us lunch, you know, as a kind gesture of love. It turns out he was buying a lunch for me, my wife, my, her parents, appetizers, and the whole, you know, shebang. So he got way more than he signed up for. To him, he was like, I'm just going to buy them a $20 lunch, and that's going to be, you know, really nice. And he gets the bill, and it's like $50. <laughs> and, you know, he, he had to stretch. It was more than what he had bargained for. But I think that is what the gospel does. You know, stretches us beyond our comfort zones, and it calls for this radical kind of love because the gospel itself is the demonstration of a radical kind of love. It's a love without limits. It's a complete, it's a perfect love. So I'm going to read, let's read together John chapter 4. We're going to try to go through 42 verses here. This is Last time I spoke, I think I covered three chapters in numbers, so this is nothing, right? We're going to cover 42 verses, and just try and stay with me. This is a story you're probably familiar with, like I said, but there's so much here, and I think it's so easy to kind of just gloss over it and miss so much of what's going on um, if you approach it with this attitude that I, I 
I know this. I've heard this. So let's read this together. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of whom, him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, 
so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the women's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your word. Through your word, through your son, you have revealed to us your great love for us. Lord, help us to understand what your word says to us here and now in this text. Let your spirit move our hearts and give our minds understanding so that our lives, Lord, may be pleasing to you as worship unto you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So at this juncture in uh, Jesus' ministry, um, he's beginning to feel some heat from his arch uh, enemies, the Pharisees. But he knows it's, it's too early. It's not time yet to really go head-to-head with them. And so uh, he decides to retreat along with uh, his disciples from Judea back to Galilee And this is about a 70-mile journey. So I think it's important to point this out because if you look at a map of Israel during Jesus' day, the western side is really divided up uh, into three provinces. You have Galilee in the far north, which is where Jesus grew up here in Nazareth. You have Judea in the far south, which is kind of where all the action was happening with Jerusalem as um, the religious center. And you have Samaria kind of sandwiched in between those two. Now, for most people, if you hear the word Samaritan and you're not, you know, well-versed in the Bible, you'll think, oh, these are the good guys, right? Everyone knows the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's a, I think there's a nonprofit called the Samaritan's Purse. You know, usually good things come to mind when we think of Samaritans, but... When Jesus used the the parable of the Good Samaritan, he chose it for a very specific reason. Um, He chose the Samaritan to actually be the hero of that parable, um, and not the priest, and not the Levite, because he wanted to create some shock value. You see, the people that he was speaking to when he spoke that parable, it was a very Jewish, very Pharisaic, um, very prejudiced audience. And he wanted to rock their world. And so Jesus was teaching them in that parable, this very Jewish audience, where the Samaritan is the hero, the one who loves. He's teaching them that who you love is not to be restricted to whom you find easy to love, right? But whom you love to hate. He says, that is your neighbor. That is whom you are called to love. And so the reality is, in Jesus' days, most Jews, when they were traveling between Galilee and Judea, or from Judea to Galilee, they would often just circumvent Samaria altogether. 
they would just go east of the Jordan River here and get where they needed to go in Galilee. Now, this would turn what was a 70-mile journey to, like, about 100 miles. Now, I don't know about you, but if I miss an exit when I'm driving on the highway and I have to drive, like, an extra two miles, I get really annoyed. So imagine how much you have to hate someone to walk an extra 30 miles in the desert heat just to avoid them, just to not have to look at their face. That's the level of hatred that's shared between Jews and the Samaritans. And I think it's actually analogous to the, the hatred between Jews and Palestinians today. There's a long, long history of despising one another. So let me give you some background as to why. Before Samaria became a region, it was really just a city right here. Samaria the city, Samaria the province. And it was designated as the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel by King Ahab's father, Omri. And actually, for about a century and a half, it flourished until it was conquered by the Assyrians in about 700 B.C. And this is where everything kind of turns. You know, after the Assyrians took over, they extended the city into a region, and they shipped all the best, all the brightest Jews out of that area. All the ruling classes, all the noblemen, all the artisans. And so all that was left among the Jews was this remnant of kind of leftover Jews in this Sumerian area. And the Syrians, they took and they assimilated their people, some other people they conquered, back into this area, and they, and they intermarried with these Jews. And this happened over the course of a few centuries. And over the time... Uh, you know, the Jewish faith of these leftover Jews blended in with some of the pagan religions from these other, um, from the Assyrians and these other countries and nations, and they became known as the Samaritans. And when the Jews returned from exile under Nehemiah to rebuild the city walls, and the Samaritans actually came and they offered to help. You know, to them, they kind of still saw themselves as Jews. They still believed in the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. That's really all they believed in, but they held on to some of their Jewish faith. But the Jews, they wouldn't have no part of it. They're like, no, you, you, can't, you can't be with us. In their eyes, they saw the Samaritans as this, you know, half-breed, mongrel tribe. So the Samaritans, you know, uh, didn't take to that too kindly. They would sabotage their uh, rebuilding efforts in Jerusalem. And they actually ended up building their own place of worship at Shechem on Mount Gerizim. And so the Jews saw Samaritans not only as racially impure, but they saw them as religious apostates. They were just like these massive sellouts. And this hatred came to a head about 20 years, actually, before Jesus' time, uh, when some Samaritans uh, come into the temple in Jerusalem, and they started scattering all these human bones all over the courtyard, knowing that it was going to defile the temple. And they just desecrated the entire area. I mean, to contextualize that, I think that would be like, just think about, you know, we're enjoying maybe a Christmas service and a bunch of zealous atheists, you know, barge in, destroy our nativity scene, and start throwing, like, feces and animal blood over the place. It would, be, it would be something akin to that. So for the Jews, they believe, you know, contact with a Samaritan, especially a Samaritan woman, was grounds for personal defilement. You know, to them, the women were perpetually unclean. And their hatred actually became codified. And as you can see, even when you look at the Gospels, this prejudice wasn't just, you know, the Jewish people, but even Jesus' own disciples, they shared the same prejudice. 
And at one moment in Jesus' ministry, Jesus, you know, is not welcomed in a particular town in Samaria. And do you remember what John and James said when, they, when he's not welcomed? He's, they say to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? It's like he's getting really excited. It's like, let's bring the fire in this place. Let's watch it burn. They just want to see this place go down. They can't stand these people. And so this is the historical, cultural context of this encounter. And so in verse 5, it says, So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, which is right here, right in the center of Samaria here. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son Jake, Jake, or Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Jesus was tired from his journey. He sat down by the well. It was about noon. I think this is an important point. It was about noon. So here we are in the middle of the day, hot desert sun beating down. They're about 40 miles into their journey. Jesus is weary. His disciples go out, find some food, and he sits alone by this well. And, you know, in, in uh, ancient times, the well was actually like the center of the village. It was where everyone kind of congregated. You, you need water, right? So on a daily basis, everyone would just go in. And, and get water in the morning and late in the evening. This is kind of where everyone just hung out. I think it's, it's similar to, like, you know, if you work in the corporate world, everyone hangs out with a water cooler, <laughs> but to a much larger scale. This is kind of where you socialize, you get your water, you talk office gossip. Same thing back in the days of Jesus. Um, but the reason why people chose the early morning and the evening is, you know, obvious. It's no one wants to log a big, heavy pail of water back in the hot desert sun. So they tried to do it when it was cooler in the morning and the evening. And so it's no coincidence that this, at high noon, Jesus is sitting by himself. There's no one else there. Until this woman appears, a Samaritan woman, and Jesus sees her, and he asks her, will you give me a drink? And she says to him, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? Now, I think it's easy uh, to, this is a really nice picture of the women in the well. Jesus, it's almost too nice. She almost looks too well to do, right? But it's easy to think that when Jesus asks her for a drink that he's kind of being rude, right? Like, you're a man. You can get your own drink, right? There's this uh, joke by, you guys know comedian Jeff Foxworthy? He says, um, he talks about how rednecks use the word sensuous. And he says, when I'm watching TV on the couch, I use it all the time with my mouth. I says, sensuous up, get me a beer. Okay, I think you have to be from the country to enjoy that one. <laughs> sensuous up, get me a beer. This was not what Jesus is doing. He's not demeaning this woman by asking her for a drink, he's doing actually quite the opposite, right? Because in that day and age, it was not acceptable for a man to publicly speak with a woman that was not his wife. It was not acceptable for a Jew to converse with a Samaritan and risk defilement. And it was certainly not acceptable for any self-respecting rabbi to dignify an adulteress. She knew this. He knew this, and this is why he, she expresses shock that he's even talking to her, let alone asking her for help. So here's a woman who in all likelihood was the village outcast. She was a moral failure. I think this explains why she is fetching 
water at high noon, the hottest part of the day. She's trying to avoid the crowds. She knew very well the life of a pariah. She knew the judgmental glares. She knew the hushed whispers. She knew the pointed fingers. She wanted no part of it. And if that meant, you know, her coming to get her water the hottest part of the day, so be it. And in verse 10, Jesus answers her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. This is such an interesting exchange to me. It's, it's obvious that they're talking you know, over each other's heads because Jesus is referring to a living water that is spiritual. The woman is fixated on a water that is physical. And she needs water. You know, we, we fail to appreciate just how valuable a resource water is, how necessary. I mean, we, it's so ubiquitous. It's so accessible for us. I live out in the country. We don't have um, any water pumped in there, piped into our house. So we have a well, actually. It's not a well like this, but it's actually like, you know, it actually um, just pumps water electrically. And, and uh, when we first moved in a year and a half ago, it, it smelled. It smelled bad. It smelled like sulfur, like rotten eggs. Try brushing your teeth, you know, with like when you feel like you're eating rotten eggs. And so we had to spend a lot of money, get a filter, and get it all cleaned up. And I appreciate water, clean water, a little bit more than probably you guys do. But I think neither of us really appreciate to the level of, you know, these people in the first century in ancient Jerusalem. Because without water, there's, there's no life. There is no life. And so she needs water, and she would probably have to love nothing more than to avoid having to come to this well because this well, I think, is a daily reminder of her own failure, her own shame. But Jesus loves her too much to let her continue in her ignorance. And so he says, go, call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. And this is when Jesus just kind of hits her right between the eyes. He says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. That that hurts. (laughs) She's got to be thinking, look, I just came here for some water. Why you got to go there? (laughs) But if you think about it, this is actually very loving, a very loving thing for him to do. You see, by confronting her with her sin, Jesus is showing her that the greatest need in her life is not water. The greatest need in her life is the love of God embodied by the very man that stood before her. And she just, she doesn't realize it. You know, in Bruce Marshall's novel, The World, The Flesh, and Father Smith, there's a line that is so profound He writes, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously 
looking for God. What he's saying is, even in our most base, depraved sexual desires, it is a shadow of a greater spiritual need. And I think that applies even to this woman, the Samaritan woman who has had five husbands, we can say, is unconsciously looking for God. Because at the heart of our quest for pleasure, for joy, for a lasting love, is God who is love. There's an old country song, a lot of country references today, from Johnny Lee called Looking for Love. Um, maybe you know it as Wookin' Panov. Eddie Murphy did a parody on it in Saturday Night Live. But it was a very popular country song back in the day, and I feel like it just fits this woman. It actually fits so many of us so well who haven't found the Lord. It's, it says, I was looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces, searching their eyes, looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of, hoping to find a friend and a lover. I'll bless the day I discover another heart looking for love. Jesus creates this awkward moment. She's been exposed. Her defenses go up, and immediately she tries to change the subject. Right? She says, Sir, I, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. You know, back in the day when I, when I read this, I remember thinking, this woman is like trying to throw up a smoke screen. She doesn't want to talk about her sin and her, her, you know, her failed marriages. Um, she tries to switch the subject and talk about worship, theology, whatever. And I thought, oh, Jesus is just kind of playing along. He just kind of walks right into that smoke screen. But, you know, I, I realized she actually took the conversation, I think, exactly where Jesus wanted it to go. Because after coming to terms with her own failed love relationships, the topic turns to worship. And what is worship? What is worship exactly? Isn't worship in its purest form just an expression of love in the most profound way possible? And Webster defines it as the act of showing respect and love for a God. You know, I, I, I love this quote by uh, William Temple. He says, Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose. All this, all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. You see, worship is so much more than we think. There's love, there's submission. The mind is evolved the heart, the surrender of the will. And it's all wrapped up in order, adoration. Worship and love, adoration, these things are inseparable. You cannot truly worship that which you do not love. And you cannot truly love that which you do not worship. We worship because it brings our love 
to full completion. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. This is why we worshiped. It is the final act of love because it brings the joy of love full circle. It's not enough to simply be loved, but we have this burning desire to express that love in return. This is why French novelist George Sand says, there's only one happiness in life, to love and to be loved. To love and to be loved. It's not enough just to be loved. We're wired, we're built, we're designed to love. And if anyone here has ever been, like, head over heels in love, um, you remember, you remember how you used to just agonize over getting a gift for the person you love? And you used to, like, stay up all night, oh, I gotta get the perfect gift, you know, our birthday's coming up, you know, it's gotta be good, and and you really actually enjoyed it. It was like, what could I do to just express my love? Or she'll, like, understand how much I love her through this gift. And do you remember the disappointment you felt when she'd open that, you know, that present and be like, oh, that's nice? <laughs> and be like, that's it? <laughs> it's just nice? <laughs> you know how much time and energy and money I spent on this? <laughs> and it's because of that dynamic. We need to express love. Because we want that person to understand our love for them just as they love us. Just as we receive their love, we want them to receive our love. It completes the enjoyment. Last week, um, or last year, I'm sorry, I went uh, to the the corporate box at my company, had a corporate box to the Bears home opener game. And uh, I missed church that Sunday, but I realized I didn't miss worship. Because... um, I think it kind of speaks for itself, right? I didn't miss worship because the object of worship may not have been God at Soldier Field. It was the Bears. And when I walked into the stadium, I realized this this is actually church for most of America, right? This is the day they get dressed up, not in khaki pants, but in ridiculous costumes, in body paint, in mesh jerseys, and... I don't know what's on top of that guy's head. This is where they get dressed up. This is where they donate their money. Not in tithes, but in tickets. You know how expensive tickets are nowadays. This is where they find community. Not in small groups, but in tailgates. This is where they gather towards a common goal. Not in the Great Commission, but in that Lombardi trophy. This is where they sing their praises. It's not how great is our God, but it's Bear down, Chicago bear. (laughs) This is their place of worship. And sadly, the object of their worship is so undeserving. You can love the bears all you want. They're not going to love you back. (laughs) And, you know, I'm not saying that just because Cutler is a horrible quarterback or if the defense can't stop the run. I'm saying that because it's true. They're not really worthy of our worship. But this is the great tragedy of idolatry, I think. In the end, we are giving our love to something that cannot reciprocate. You know, uh, a few years ago, we vacationed in Disney World. 
And I told the kids, you could buy one thing as a souvenir. And Selah, she, my daughter, she's now seven, but this is when she was four. She carefully chose this princess doll. It was the latest Disney prince at the time, Arita. And Kim and I told her, look, you can open the box when we get home, right? Not now, not in Orlando. We should have known better. Because <laughs> uh, I remember this conversation I had with her. I recorded it um, like on Facebook, I think, or my blog. And, and I remember she asked me, can I open the box now? She said, I said, no, not now. She said, but I love her. I said, do you love her more than daddy? Yes. <laughs> I said, but she's not real. She says, I know. I said, she can't talk. She said, I know, but I love her. I said, she can't love you back. She said, I know. Do you really love her more than daddy? Okay, no. So can I open the box now? (laughs) But that's idolatry to a four-year-old. Even at a very young age, there's very little difference, actually, I think, between a four-year-old girl and full-grown adults. When it comes to loving things that are not real, that don't love us, that cannot love us back. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I think the Samaritan's woman life, so many of our lives, can be described as broken cistern. Jesus has already recognized her misplaced love, and now he is redirecting her to the one who is worthy of her love as defined in her worship. St. Augustine said, Idolatry is to love something more than it's worth. But this is why God can never be an idol, because God is of infinite worth. You can never love him greater than he is worth. You know, I grew up in a Christian school. Um, I memorized the Ten Commandments, a lot of memory verses. I knew all the Bible stories up between kindergarten and sixth grade. And I don't think I actually became saved until I was in high school. And I remember, you know, we memorized all the commandments. And these just really irritate me. Like, why, why does God always command us to love him all the time? You know, it's like, is he that insecure? Like, what's the deal? And then I realized, you know, um, in the Gospels, um, Jesus is approached um, and by a lawyer, I think, and they try to trap him and they say, um, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus very quickly answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And you can look at that and be like, really? Are you that insecure, God, that you need our love? that you would command us to love you. But I think the reality is, if you understand that we were created with the capacity to love that can only be fulfilled by the love of God, then think about this commandment. His command to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that's not an undue burden. That's an undeserved grace. He's leading us to a love that he knows that can only be found in him. A joy that can only be um, secured in him. 
And that is what Jesus is offering this woman, life with himself through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He's saying it's, it's, it's no longer about where you worship. This mountain or that city, because of his arrival, everything was about to forever change. The God that they sought in temples was about to make his residence inside of them, inside of them. And while this may not be super clear in John chapter 4, I think it becomes more clear later in John chapter 7. Jesus is standing in the temple. It's the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and he makes this dramatic announcement. He cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There's that word again. And then John provides the commentary. He says, Now this he said about the Spirit, who those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Um, Why is it so important to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? I think the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5, He says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Again, there's this language of water flowing in the Holy Spirit. We receive and we understand God's love for us through the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That is the gift. This is the living water. And through that Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, we are understanding Jesus' great love for us. Um, In verse 25, the woman says, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So all of this builds, all of this leads to this climax. And this is where Jesus is about to drop this truth bomb to the Samaritan woman. He says, I am the source of eternal life. I am the source of eternal love. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. And she finally understands. She finally gets it. She leaves her water jar. She runs back into town. She tells the very people that disdained her what she has found, who she has found, what she was looking for. And because of her witness, many of them come to believe that Jesus is, in fact, this is how it closes, this whole um, narrative. They come to believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Savior of the world. So now let's turn our attention to the disciples. There's this ragamuffin group. They return with lunch, but they find that, really, they're no smarter than uh, the Samaritan woman because when they ask Jesus to eat, he tells them, I've already eaten. And then they, too, confuse the physical with the spiritual, except this time it's not water. It's like over food, right? Like, someone give Jesus something to eat already? And then Jesus drops them a truth bomb. And he says, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. They are ripe for harvest. Now, think about this. They're standing in Sychar. This is almost the exact center of Samaria. And as far as the eye can see, it's just Samaritans upon Samaritans. These are hated people by the Jews. And Jesus is saying, God loves them. Not only does he love them, he's drawing them to himself. They're ready for harvest. 
And that is what God is doing. God is revealing through his son that he has no limits, no limits on how he loves. He has no limits on whom he loves. He is the savior of the world. That is the great revelation of this chapter, of this encounter. He is the savior of the world. And he would save his, the world through his love, a boundless love that knows no limits. And when I think about this passage, um, I think there's, um, when I say there's no limits on how he loves, what I mean is this. He meets her on a physical level. He relates to her. They share a need for water. Doesn't get any more physical need than that. But think about that for a moment. He doesn't just meet her on the common ground of their physical need. We're talking about God, the Son of God, the one who created the oceans, the one who carved the rivers. He is the one who took on flesh and bone. He experienced thirst, he experienced hunger, so he could meet us where we are so he could communicate his love for us in a way that we would understand. That is truly meeting someone on a physical level, the incarnation. Secondly, he meets her emotionally. As we said, she was at the very bottom of the food chain, the lowest of the lows. Even these despised Samaritans considered her an outcast. Jesus dignifies her emotionally by just talking to her, conversing with her, asking her for help. Think about the immediate sense of dignity she gains, something that she has never known, and the love that she's receiving from Jesus, this Jewish rabbi. For a woman whose all she has known is rejection her whole life, failed marriage relationships, love that seems so elusive. Think about how God is meeting her emotional need in that moment. Mental. Jesus meets her mental need. He engages her mind with objective truth. Objective truth about who she is. She's a sinner. She sinned. But he doesn't rub her face in it but he doesn't ignore it either. He engages her mind with the objective truth by revealing himself, not just her sin, but revealing himself to her. Who he is, the savior of the world. And he also engages her mind and explains to her what is worship? What does it really mean to love and to be loved? And her ignorance doesn't test his patience. He's kind. He's patient. He meets her mental need. And lastly, he meets her spiritual need. Again, he forces her to confront her sin. He reveals himself to her. Her greatest need is not water. But he uses her physical need to lead her to her greatest spiritual need, which is far greater, far more important. And I think that is what 
God has called each of us to do. And that is, frankly, that is what all of us have received, is it not? For anyone who has encountered Christ personally, who has received his love, I'm sure we can come up with many examples where Jesus himself, God and the Holy Spirit, has met our needs physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. You know, when Kim was sick with cancer a few years ago, um, you know, we, we really needed help. Um, I took leave off of work, and I, I couldn't even, you know, make meals for the family because I was in the hospital with Kim most of the time. And so, you know, um, so many friends and people at our church just rallied around us, and they, um, you know, they bought us meals. We had this little carton sitting in front of our door, and they would just open up the box and drop a meal in there. And, um, you know, somebody set up a schedule somewhere, I don't even remember who, and people just signed up. And every day there'd be like, open the door, and my kids would run out, what are we eating today? (laughs) So many people came, and they prayed with us. So many people shared verses with us that, um, you know, spoke to them in their time of need, whatever trial they faced, whatever verse ministered to them, they shared that with us. And I realized, um, I tell people all the time, you know, in in that very difficult, dark season, um, we saw the face of Christ through the body of Christ. Because we saw the body of Christ rally and meet our physical needs, meet our emotional needs, meet our mental needs, meet our spiritual needs. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And I look at us as church today, and we're going to have the same-sex seminar next week, and this, this topic has become like a lightning rod between the culture and the church. It's just Unbelievable. And, you know, when I'm on Facebook and I'm reading my news feed, you know, it's, it's pretty much like you can pretty much separate people into one of two camps. You have all truth and no love camp, <laughs> and you have the all love and no truth camp. And so you got the all truth people who are like, this is sin. Kick them out of the church. You know, don't associate with them. It's kind of like the Pharisees of old, I think. Then you have, you know, the all love and no truth camp, and be like, it's not a sin. You got to love them, accept everyone. You know, and I realize truth without love destroys. But love without truth deceives. Neither is truly loving, is it? And yet here comes Jesus, and the Bible describes him as full of grace and truth. He is the perfect balance of truth and love. And I think this encounter, especially for someone who's dealing with sexual sin is such a perfect blueprint for how we as a church should rise up and deal with this in our own lives, with the people we love, with the culture that we engage, is, look, we have to speak truth, but we also have to show love. And so in my mind, it's, I, I feel like the all, the, the, uh, the all love and no truth people kind of fall into this physical and emotional camp. They're very quick to, to meet people's physical and emotional needs, make them feel good, you know, really be with them and put an sh- you know, arm around their shoulder and minister to them, that's great. That is needed. But you've got you to gotta speak truth, too. You can't let them live in a lie. And then you have the all-truthers. You're kind of like just this blue, mental and spiritual. It's, to me, it's, it's like all they want to do is, like, it's the principle, it's the verse, you know, this is truth. And yet, where are they really? Are they really ministering? Do they really love these people that God has called us to love? And so, 
We are called to love um, in love and in truth. This is why I think 1 Corinthians 13 says love is patient, love is kind. But it also says love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. You see there's balance there. And so for someone who has received the perfect love of God, balanced in truth and in love, that is physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, I, I think we can also give that love, can we not? Lastly, I just want to share that God's love is not just deep. It doesn't just meet us in every level where we are. Um, it's also wide. And it destroys all the barriers that we put up that try to define who we will love, right? Like we kind of have in our minds, like, we can love these people. They're, they're kind of like us. They line up with me ideologically. <laughs> right? They're in my socioeconomic class. Their religious views line up with mine. I can love them. God says, no, you, you don't get to define the boundaries for who you love because God himself never defined those boundaries. And what I mean is socially, there was no boundaries for Jesus' love. He said, I don't care if you're a woman. Do you remember the disciples came back and said, what's he talking to a woman for? That just tells you what the culture was like from that day. Jesus didn't care about that social barrier. This was a Samaritan woman. He didn't care about that. He knew very well what a Samaritan represented. But he just busted through that racial barrier. He knew in the Jewish mind as a rabbi that to be around her was unclean, and she was unclean. She was immoral. But his religious, his religious boundaries did not exist. He didn't say, because you line up with me in terms of what you believe, in terms of your faith, in terms of your creed, then I'll talk to you. He does quite the opposite. And that is what I'm talking about when I'm saying Jesus has a limitless love, a love without limits. It meets us deep. It meets us wide. It is a perfect, it is a complete love. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I'm going to ask all of us to just bow our heads as we reflect on this passage. There's really three characters in this entire story, in this narrative. There's the Samaritan woman, there's the disciples, and then there's Jesus. And chances are one of us or one of those characters is really going to resonate with us where we are right now. For some of us, we're struggling. We're struggling in our sin. Could be a sexual sin. Could be another type of sin. We don't feel accepted. We feel like an outcast. We're looking for love in all the wrong places. We've not yet found the love of God. This message is for you. His love knows no limits. No matter your sin, no matter where you've been, even if you're on your sixth marriage, His love is for you.
And if you're a disciple, if you already know the Lord, if you already believe that you have a relationship with the Lord, but you still struggle, you have limits on your love. You can love up to a certain extent, but no more. And this message is for you too. It's not about loving who we want to love. It's not about loving how we want to love. It's about receiving the perfect love of God that is found in Jesus Christ and spoken into our hearts, poured into our hearts, in fact, by the Holy Spirit. And when we receive that love, it is only then that we can give a perfect love. And if we are restricting our imperfect love in our little boxes, I'm only going to love this person this much. I'm only going to love that person that much. Rest assured, God is coming. He's coming to destroy your box. Not just because he wants you to give his love. He wants you to receive his love, a full understanding of his love, his perfect love. And only his perfect love can make us perfect. It's Jesus we're after. It's Jesus that we long for. He is the message. He is our model. He is our motive. So let's just spend a few minutes. Let the Spirit speak into your heart. If your love um, has limits, confess that before him. If you do not know of this love, this limitless love, confess that to him. He will meet you exactly where you are. 